all the leaves are brown and the skies are grey. And we're back for season two of Somewhere to Believe in, the podcast brought to you by Greenbelt Festival. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Yeah, good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. Um, I was going to say welcome to episode four, which it is true. It is episode four of season two. But Derek on the staff team, he he said, look, you really should be saying it's episode 12 of, um, you know, spread across two seasons, as it were. It does make us sound like we've done more. I like it that. does. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go with 12. Now, today, we're not going to do much chit-chat beforehand because the conversation that we've got lined up uh, feels like something we need to get to as soon as possible. Who is it we're speaking to today, Catherine? We're speaking to Natalia Kalada, who is the artistic director or co-founding artistic director of Belarus Free Theatre, founded with her husband, Nikolai. So, Catherine, what, why are we speaking to Natalia about Belarus Free Theatre? What, what's the interest there? What's the connection for us? Well, Belarus Free Theatre are a theatre company that we've been trying to get to the festival for many, many years because their work is something that feels really important to bring to Greenbelt and something that our audiences would really appreciate seeing and being involved in. And we did actually bring them to Greenbelt last year, didn't we? Yeah, 2019, we brought Balaclava Blues, which you had seen, hadn't you, Catherine? What what was Balaclava Blues about? So Balaclava Blues grew out of a theatre show called Counting Sheep that I went to see, which was about the Ukrainian protests of independence. Yeah, I'm going to say it. it was the best theatre show that I've ever seen, ever. The pieces that they create are so powerful and so emotive getting the audience to understand and and kind of take one step forward and feel what it is like to be on the front line fighting for freedom in your country yeah I actually felt for the first time in my life I mean it brought me to tears afterwards like sobbing tears I had to go and hug all the actors afterwards because it was it brought I'd never felt what it would be like before to be fighting for democracy in my country with my life and these are all people that were my age that were doing it and yeah it was just incredible so fighting for democracy belarus ukraine where are we talking about because some of us might not know where these countries are are they in you know, are they more Russian, more European? What, what, what's of interest about these countries, Catherine? Well, they're near Russia. So I think that some people just kind of think of them as Russian. And I guess they have links to Russian Russia being previous Soviet countries. But um, they're actually part of Europe. And Belarus is known as the last dictatorship in Europe. And when you let that sink in... It's, it's kind of shocking to think that there is still an active and violent dictatorship happening in a European country and has been happening for 25 years. So I think that's why we wanted to head straight to this conversation, really, because like Catherine said, it is shocking to realise as Europeans that this situation, that these situations, that these injustices, that this dictatorship, that this oppression is happening sort of quite literally in global terms on our doorstep. And just to give a bit of background to what that dictatorship actually manifests itself in terms of art and culture, because obviously we're talking to a theatre company, um, they, all the theatres are state-owned. All the artistic directors of the theatre are state-appointed. And the plays that you can put on in this theatre are state approved. So there is a real restriction into the kind of art that people can experience and see in the country. And so starting a theatre group called Belarus Free Theatre, which is an illegal theatre group, is, is massive and dangerous and important. And to me, it shows, it shows the importance of art in spreading stories because if art wasn't dangerous then you'd just let it happen wouldn't you 
We spoke to Natalia. Um, she is living mostly in London at the moment, in exile from Belarus. Uh, we spoke to her. Some of the information that you'll hear is really hard hitting and can be difficult to listen to. I know that me and Paul found it ex like extremely shocking. So just know that going into it. But again, really important to hear. Um, thank you so much for your time. We're really excited to talk to you. Thank you so much. So happy to be with you. Could you perhaps um, just say for the tape who you are and what your role is with Belarus Free Theatre? Uh, my name is Natalia Kalada and I am a founding co-artistic director or co-founding artistic director. We never managed to um, properly frame our positions with my husband. So we simply call uh, either founding artistic directors or co-founding artistic director. So that's uh, one of uh, uh, those uh, roles that uh, I personally have, as well as CEO of the company. Uh, but uh, in my parallel life, um, I was trained as a diplomat and uh, worked for American government for 10 years, moving nuclear weapons out of Belarus and uh, cleaning soil from rocket fuel uh, before doing theater. <laughs> So, Natalia, what got you into the idea of making a theatre company in Belarus? Uh, I think uh, it's connected to uh, my family as well, uh, because um, I wanted to become an actress when I was 16 years old. But my father, he was uh, vice chancellor of the only Academy of Arts in Belarus. And uh, he said that... Uh, it's not better to do that because it will be considered as corruption even if you enter yourself, even if all exams will be perfect. Uh, but in our country, people will think that uh, I got there because of him and he really didn't want to do that for me. And my uh, brother, who is 10 years older than me, uh, he said, like, listen, uh, little one, uh, don't worry and you should become a diplomat. Uh, so it's the same thing. You need to pretend all the time, but on top of it, you will speak English. So here I am. <laughs> um, and um, oh, But my parents, they're coming from uh, theater world. Uh, both of them are trained as uh, actors, uh, and uh, both of them uh, worked uh, in the industry. My mom is TV director, and my father is now teaching our students uh, because he was fired from this, the only Academy of Arts. He was dismissed and he was told that his children are a disgrace for the country and he's a disgrace for the Academy of Arts. And um, But now lucky we are uh, because he teach our students who we teach uh, underground. But I just made a step ahead already, uh, but it was uh, censorship, censorship of life. Uh, whatever you do in your life is completely prohibited. Um, and um, uh, at some point you understand that when you start to write a play, uh, as my husband started to do, nobody could prohibit you to do that. And uh, he started to write uh, plays and it started to get awards outside of Belarus. But because he was prohibited inside of Belarus, it wasn't possible to stage at any national theater because we have only national official theaters, 28 official theaters uh, and 32 jails, uh, what talks a lot about <laughs> our country. And uh, we became the only independent one because we thought... We will do it underground. And uh, if it's very easy to catch people when they are on the surface, uh, but uh, when they go underground um, and work in secret locations, it's more difficult for authorities. And we thought underground doesn't have the start and the end. And we could dig very deeply uh, and hide physically, but do not hide um, in terms of our ideas. Uh, and that's how it was announced. We just chose the day. And we said uh, at the press conference that 
Belarus Free Theater starts its existence. Uh, that was it. Uh, and after that, um, we made three major steps. It was alternative system of education that we established right away. And I would say that it's a, a baby of my husband, that idea of alternative system of education. Uh, we started international competition of contemporary plays because we think that playwrights, they are the best X-ray machines of society. And uh, the third one, uh, uh, we started to produce uh, shows. All of it been either online uh, or in secret locations. So for us, lockdown uh, doesn't mean anything because we exist in lockdown for all years of our existence. Even going back before your parents' uh, time, Natalia, I think we've read that your family has a long history of resistance, uh, creative resistance and protest. And I think I read somewhere that your grandfather was even imprisoned by Stalin. Um, does it feel like it's in your DNA? Is it in your genes to to resist and to fight the status quo? Uh yeah, it's. Uh, I told my grandmother when my husband was released uh, uh, out of jail, uh, and we went uh, to see her uh, when she was still alive. And uh, she said, "Like I never thought uh, that uh, my uh, grandchildren uh, will face what we faced." And uh, I thought that uh, everything was over. Uh, went, uh, when your grandfather went to Stalin jail and before he was in German concentration camp. Um, and when Soviets uh, freed uh, Germany uh, after the World War II, uh, many people who were in concentration camps in Germany, they've been sent to Soviet gulag. And uh, that was exactly the story of my uh, grandfather. And um, when she told me that it was over, she hoped it was over uh, with my grandfather, I told her that uh, that's the problem of DNA. So uh, what I'm living now <laughs> is because of our family DNA. And uh, the question is, uh, do I want to have another life? Do I want to have another experience I guess I do, because um, uh, when uh, my children uh, tell me that they are so tired uh, from our fight and uh, from all major fears uh, for us and um, also for grandparents and also for uh, themselves, uh, you, it, it's a... It's a terribly difficult uh, decision that you have to make uh, but we are lucky to have uh, parents like we have uh, because uh, my father uh, and my mother they support us uh, and I spoke with him over Skype another day and he said like uh, do you understand that you don't have time to speak with you with me um, because you are so deeply in the fight with dictatorship. And I told him, like, listen, but who told me that I need to finish what I've started? And he said, yeah, maybe because of you, I will at least try to live one year in free Belarus before I die. And that's exactly when you hear that, you understand. Uh, he taught me that. And uh, my father-in-law unfortunately died also because of us, uh, because we had uh, a meeting with uh, William Hague when he was uh, foreign secretary uh, of the UK. And we've been lobbying for major economic sanctions against uh, Lukashenko, and, uh, who is dictating Belarus and the regime. And uh, all his, uh, as I call them, scumbags or moneybags who support him and keep the regime going and... Um, even though uh, KGB knew, because we still have KGB, uh, that we are in London, they raided the department of my father-in-law and uh, he had a heart attack and he passed away. But uh, before 
uh, because it's happened uh, kind of within two days. They raided uh, on one day. He got in a hospital on the same day. But from a hospital, he managed to give us a call. And he said that I defended our home. But you now need to continue uh, the fight and uh, to bring democracy uh, to Belarus. And next day he died. We feel terribly guilty uh, overall, but um, kind of what helped us to continue, it's exactly that phone call. I think if he didn't do that phone call, I mean, I don't know what will happen with us kind of mentally. It's bad anyway. It's so difficult. Uh, but um, kind of those phrases from parents and uh, grandparents uh, uh, give us strength. Did you know when you started Belarus Free Theatre, when you had this idea of doing an underground theatre in Belarus, which would have been illegal, did you did you know what kind of future or life that you were signing yourself up for in that moment? Yeah, because it was already uh, uh, when we started the whole uh, brainstorming what it means, uh, Belarus Free Theatre, uh, it was uh, September of 2004, uh, and we announced about the existence in 2005. And the idea came from very simple... Uh, brainstorming session with our friends when we've been preparing a major European march, uh, like a march for Europe, uh, because we're always, as as the country, we wanted to become a part of EU. Uh, and uh, we started like to discuss what it means, I mean, like free Belarus. And of course, like you understand, it's like it's everything free from censorship. It's free music, uh, like uh, literature, history. And then somehow we said the word theater and it started kind of with we got so hooked into it with my husband because at that time he was already uh, writing plays and it was uh, staged outside of Belarus. And we thought that probably the way what we could do, uh, how we could help. Um, and uh, it was 2004. And by that time, Lukashenko was already in power for 10 years. Uh, so nothing new. <laughs> Uh, we lost our friends. Uh, they were kidnapped and killed, and it's happened in uh, 1999 and in 2000. Uh, and I think it's exactly you kind of, as a, I guess, like as a human being, you think, uh, what can I accept? Like, as all of us, like, I guess, uh, thinking about different compromises in, in life. Um, and by that time, uh, I worked for American government till uh, 2001, I think, if I remember correctly. And by that time, I was already a public enemy because I was considered as a foreign spy. <laughs> um, and my job was to support all democratic forces in Belarus. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a major article in the uh, Soviet Belarus newspaper, what is uh, the main newspaper, but it's called Soviet Belarus. Uh, and today it's 2020, <laughs> but it's still Soviet. Uh, and um, I was at my office at the American embassy and I uh, get a phone call from my father and he says, do you know that you are everywhere? And I said, what do you mean that I'm everywhere? And he said that our uh, main official newspaper published a specific uh, kind of additional uh, edition uh, of the newspaper where they wrote that I'm leading the major uh, kind of coup against Lukashenko and uh, that I was that main person behind the whole uh, coup. That was uh, flattering, uh, but uh, of course uh, that wasn't safe. Uh, and uh, it was clear that there will be no possibility to live uh, safely. Uh, authorities tried to 
sees my apartment, even though it's not, it wasn't my apartment. My family lives all together for generations, uh, and it was my grandparents' apartment. Um, and um, uh, so it, it, it was kind of very heavy pressure because when I was living, for example, uh, for the office at the morning in order for KGB to show that they are uh, watching me. Uh, when I will get back from the office, uh, just imagine that all the furniture will be brought in the middle of a room. So nothing will be taken, nothing will be stolen, of course, because uh, they are not theft. Kind of. They are stolen life, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but they put that pressure and when you get home and you see like the whole furniture just in the center of the room or you get home and all windows around your apartment is open and nothing else. So this is the way how they've been showing uh, as well that they simply could at- enter uh, our house any single moment they want. Uh, so we knew from the very beginning what will be happening because nothing new we will expect from them. And this has been the situation for so long in Belarus, as you're saying, you know, uh, Lukashenko has been in power for so long. And yet we in Europe seem naive, um, not awake to the situation. And it's in the UK, it's perhaps only this summer when we've seen the mass protests and we've seen um, the, the fleeing of Svetlana from the, from the country that we suddenly say, hey, what's happening in Belarus? Why is it that, why is it taking us so long to pay attention? I think like then we need to go into very uh, long conversation about kind of uh, Western democracy and its uh, kind of imperial thinking. And uh, because it's much more easier uh, for the Western democracy to show uh, to continents that are very far from European that uh, we're coming to save you guys, like we're coming. But uh, the problem with Belarus, it's in Europe. It's uh, you get on a flight, direct flight, everyone who wants to experience something unbelievable and uh, very historical moment that is happening now, uh, go to Gatwick, get on a plane, I think Wednesday, Friday, uh, London, Minsk, two hours and 30 minutes, and you get into complete different reality. But nobody wanted to do that because it is in Europe, because it's two-hour flights. Uh, and, of course, for Europeans, it's very difficult to recognize the fact that they even can't deal with dictator in Europe. So um, it means that... like they are not able uh, to resolve the world situation because they they simply can't resolve European situation. People uh, in Belarus have been killed because they've been uh, coming to the protest with uh, EU flag. Uh, And here we have the whole country that became a second home for us uh, that decided to stop that unity and kind of understanding that uh, European Union was created in order to stop wars because all of us are very realistic people and we understand that uh, the history of Europe is a history of wars. So do we do we want that to start again? And uh, uh, also there is no uh, strength uh, how to deal with Russia. So... Uh, when you talk about Belarus, so straight away you will get the answer, but we have a major problem uh, kind of on your east border. It's Russia. Uh, and try we try to explain for years, like from day one when Lukashenko came to power, because uh, everyone knew that it will be a complete disaster. And uh, uh, so we've been trying to explain to the Western uh, leaders that if you do not stop Lukashenko in Belarus, then uh, Russians will find more sophisticated version and it will be more dangerous uh, than Lukashenko because Russians have so much money. This is like uh, the richest people in the world. I mean, 
here I'm talking about Putin, who is considered uh, the richest uh, man in the world. And uh, it's exactly what started. Uh, it's exactly what happened because uh, Western democracy never works proactively. Uh, Western democracy works reactively. When the problem appears, then they start try to resolve it, but it's too late to resolve it uh, because the uh, interference, uh, uh, for example, by Russians brought so much harm uh, to the UK. You read Russian report uh, over summer to the United States uh, because uh, what people didn't see coming uh I mean, like people who live under democracy, that uh, dictatorship is contagious. Uh, dictatorship is contagious because uh, uh, what dictators try to do, uh, they uh, wanted to be like uh, royalty, like monarchs, like to stay f- in power uh, for good till the end of their lives and then grant that power to their children. It's exactly the same model. Uh, and um, but what democratic leaders wanted to do, they want to become dictators because uh, what we see now, uh, it's a very simple thing. Democratic leaders are using democratic frames to sell dictatorial rhetorics to population, and uh, this is what is uh, kind of scary for me personally because, uh, as I often say, that like we people who come from dictatorship are very uh, kind of sensible to any form of control. So, like, we feel it straight away that something is wrong. And uh, it's exactly what we started to feel in the UK. And we never thought that uh, we could get the feeling because we've been coming to this country a long time before we became political refugees. We've been coming to perform here as well to the, like, to 47 other countries in the world. Uh, But um, when you see how democracy uh, gets corrupted and how people not able to see it and thinking that it will simply pass uh, and you will will wake up next day and it will be as it was before. No, it will never be as it was before because we didn't start to defend our rights on time. And to get back our rights takes much more time uh, than uh, for authorities, for any system, to take it away from us, from people. And that's the thing, like why nobody wanted to pay attention to Belarus, because it's such a complex geopolitical and international relationship question. And only now, uh, after 26 years, but again, like, like again, like people got arrested uh, on Sunday. For today, it's more than 15,000 people who got arrested. 15,000 in Europe these days. Um, and uh, again, in terms of media agenda, Belarus is not longer there because the world is not able to deal uh, with more than one conflict at a time, kind of our attention span um, is kind of so sporadic, and we're just moving in chaos and trying to understand like what is happening at uh, national level, and we don't care what is happening internationally. And the only thing that we are missing while we are looking inwards and not looking outwards, uh, it's necessary to understand that we are so interconnected if we don't pay attention uh, to what's happening in other parts of the world. It will get to us. Natalia, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what's been happening in Belarus this summer and um, what started this these recent protests? So this summer... Uh, I think I I try quickly to start from uh, March uh, when uh, lockdown happened in the the UK uh, and we sent uh, all our actors, 26 members of our companies who continue to work underground in Belarus, we sent into lockdown in Belarus because Alexander Lukashenko denied the fact of coronavirus 
and uh, he advised people to get uh, vodka, go to sauna, and get on tractor uh, as a rescue plan. Uh, and um, uh, that was, uh, and in May, uh, uh, he announced uh, new presidential elections because in Belarus, you never know when elections will take place. It's always coming as a big surprise. Uh, and it came uh, right uh, around the uh, victory day. It was a huge military parade, like 15,000 people. Uh, the date was announced, and it was the 9th of August. And uh, he hoped that uh, because of coronavirus and uh, the world not paying attention, it will be very possible for him to rig it very easily. Uh, as he did for all years of his uh, existence. And uh, it didn't work. Uh, it didn't work because this time uh, it was an uh, existential crisis uh, for Belarus, uh, for people of Belarus, because, first of all, people knew that uh, uh, coronavirus situation, when the whole world is trying somehow to uh, protect people, uh, this one is arresting and putting in jail doctors who are telling the truth because all doctors signed the um, papers that they can't uh, say that people are dying from coronavirus, non-disclosure papers. But uh, some been very brave and they sat and they ended up in jails. So people started to understand that it's kind of real death and life situation. Economy went down, so it's also about future of children, so life and death again. And then uh, in Belarus, in order to become presidential candidate, you need to collect a specific number of signatures, like more than 100,000. Uh, and there were a number of people like Viktor Babarika, Sergei Tikhanovsky, and even though people been queuing like for hours and hours, kilometers and kilometers under the rain, um, giving their signatures. And Viktor Babarika almost uh, collected uh, half a million of signatures. Uh, and Sergei Tikhanovsky, don't remember exactly how many, maybe 200,000 or... And um, what Lukashenko did, he did again another mistake. He said those signatures are not real. And uh, when you personally know that you've been queuing for days and hours to give that signature, the only message you get, it means that you are not recognized uh, as a population of the country. You, like Lukashenko, doesn't recognize his own people. So it was, again, another existential crisis. And uh, the next one he did, he started to arrest people already in June. So before elections on the 9th of August, by that time, 1,000 people got arrested already. And uh, Belarus never saw that before. Like usually all arrests will happen after the elections. Uh, so in 2010, when I was got arrested, 2,000 people got arrested, but it, got, it happened after the elections, not before. Uh, and... Uh, then the week, the 9th of August to the 12th of August, uh, the most horrific thing started to happen during the daylight time. What never happened in Belarus again. It's uh, when I was arrested in 2010, I was threatened to be raped, uh, but I wasn't raped. So I was lucky in jail. But... Uh, this time they started to rape people uh, and they started to rape uh, uh, boys, men, uh, and it was kind of specific angle that they used. They also uh, raped uh, girls and women, but uh, bigger number is connected to uh, male rape. And it was done with uh, foreign objects and uh, our managing director, Svetlana, uh, together with her partner, Nadia, who got arrested as well and went through absolute horror in jail, they said that uh, the one thing that will definitely stay till the end uh, of their lives with them is that particular scream that was coming from male floor when tortures took place there. 
And people, when they got released out of jail, uh, I mean, many of them are going like through absolutely horrific uh, post-traumatic syndrome. And uh, kind of talking to Sveta and Nadia, they said an interesting phrase to us. Uh, they said, because of our shows that we did, it helped us in jail because we saw all of it on stage like hundreds and thousands of times when we've been trying to inform audiences all over the world about reality that is happening in Belarus, Russia, and uh, Russian invasion to Ukraine. And uh, there was a moment when they've been made uh, like in a tiny cell, what was uh, 12 meters. Uh, there were 36 women and... Um, with no toilets and, of course, no possibility to sleep so because they've been standing for hours and hours. And um, at some point all the time, they will uh, make them, riot police will make them out of the cell and they will make them uh, completely stripped. So they will be staying completely naked, uh, all those women of different age uh, and... Um, uh, and then they will make them ban. And in Sveta's case, uh, they've been trying to suffocate her. And they said, uh, Nadia and Sveta said that uh, only because we saw that specific moment already or during Benning Door's show, when we spoke about the uh, experience of Masha Alokhina from Pussy Riot and Oleg Sintsov, Ukrainian filmmaker who was tortured in the Russian jail, they said we've been just imagining all the time that it's just part of the show and it what helped them uh, to go through uh, that experience. Um, so for now, protest continues. The most incredible protest, I can't remember um, from the modern history, and I will take only 21st century, uh, kind of 20 years of the 21st uh, century, that uh, it will be such an incredible protest that is fully led by women uh, and their made major generation of that peaceful transformation. Uh, and uh, nonstop when violence uh, is used against uh, people, people are not using violence. Uh, it's something incredible. Honestly, I need to confess, when I was in Belarus, I was fighting with police <laughs> because I couldn't <laughs> seriously manage that. <laughs> uh, but uh, it means it's good that I'm out and I'm not uh, kind of doing uh, that fight. And uh, I'm exactly in that place where I have to be uh, because uh while I'm away, I'm able to lobby and negotiate uh, major political targeted economic sanctions uh, against uh, Lukashenko and his regime, but also about uh, against his uh, uh, scumbags uh, and the Russian oligarchs uh, who are supporting also him and uh, the right number of Belarusians as well. So we submitted the list of... Uh, their names to uh, London to Foreign Office and the Parliament and Brussels and D.C. and working on it. So uh, it's exactly what we could do now for the country. And we, we hope that peaceful transition will come. Of course, there is a fear, a major fear, that uh, when uh, a person in power who is obsessed with power when he understands that he is losing bad, badly. He, for kind of his last push, he could bring so much blood um, that uh, will be not possible to digest. But I, I do hope, even though I, I don't have a big hope, uh, that uh, jointly EU, uh, the UK, and uh, Washington, unfortunately, talking with State Department and Congress and uh, Senate, they have their own problem <laughs> that hopefully will be resolved on the 3rd of November and Trump will go. But there is another conversation happening that whether he will go peacefully as well.
it's, it's exactly to come back on the topic that dictatorship is contagious, that um, it's very difficult to drop that power when you're obsessed with power. And uh, hopefully American people uh, will start to enjoy democracy uh, again very soon because it's a, it, it feels like almost desperate hunger for democracy uh, in America. And it feels like uh, we need to preserve democracy in America and the UK in order to stabilize the world because now it feels so disenfranchised that there is a big fear that uh, all those cracks, especially with Russian interference, might continue to bring more uh, harm. So hopefully that situation will be resolved and a joint kind of force uh, in between the US, UK and EU on democracy and human rights will be reestablished. Um, you described earlier on that theatre is almost like an X-ray on society, and I, I loved that phrase. I wonder if you could tell our listeners just a few examples of some of the shows, some of the theatre that you have managed to make in impossible circumstances over the years. Uh, if I remember correctly, we created twenty-seven shows, but uh, maybe even more. So we need to, to check. Uh, already, kind of lost the track of it, but. Uh, Generation Genes, it's a solo show done by by my husband, Nikolai Halezin, and he talks about his experience uh, when he was selling jeans and rock music during the Soviet Union and get arrested for that and how he got arrested for the same stuff because rock music was prohibited um, still not very much allowed in Belarus. And um, uh, it is a conversation between DJ and him. And uh, it's exists for uh, 10 years, This not 10, more, 13 years. And we're still performing that piece because it's so relevant. Um, and uh, being Harold Pinter, based on Harold Pinter Place, and uh, that was the show that Harold Pinter himself saw, uh, and it was his last public uh, appearance uh, at Soho Theatre. And when he saw it, he said that uh, Belarus Free Theatre is bringing uh, back essence uh, of the theatre, and it was a major one for us. And... Um, uh, it's a uh, red forest. Uh, we spoke about uh, refugee crisis uh, that, and we did that particular show one year and a half before European refugee crisis happened. And the review has been split it into two. All young people loved it. Uh, it was sold out show. Old critics didn't love it. And they said, like, go back to your Belarus uh, because now uh, refugee crisis will never happen. Uh, and then <laughs> it's kind of badly happened. Uh, so it's like, again, coming back to the phrase that you loved, Paul, in terms of x-rays, because we don't have political agenda. We're just uh, kind of immersing ourselves into society. Uh, Discover Love uh, talks about kidnappings and murders uh, in Belarus uh, in 1999, and it's about our friend uh, who was kidnapped and killed. And we now perform it in Belarus, and uh, it was performed yesterday, and our audience is saying that is more relevant than ever, uh, because now we have uh, lots of murders in Belarus uh, that's happened over uh, three months. Uh, Trash Cuisine talks about death penalty because Europe is on the list um, of continents uh, that use death penalty, capital punishment, uh, only because of Belarus. But that show talks about all continents. And it's very, uh, as all our shows are very difficult ones, um, uh, but we're all the time linking the globe to each other and uh, saying that, if we stop it in Belarus, it's not enough. We need to stop it in America and everywhere. Um, Burning Doors, uh, it's, uh, I guess, my favorite one. Um, I, I love that because uh, 
it was possible to achieve something incredible for me personally because we managed to include contemporary art piece into contemporary theater and use uh, bodies of actors uh, that way that you don't need to use any words, but you could immerse audience into understanding what the torture means. Uh, now uh, we're supposed to bring the show Dogs of Europe in May to the Barbican, unfortunately, it didn't happen. We still hope it will be possible next year, but obviously if social distancing in theater will continue, it won't be possible. Um, and it talks about the establishment of a new Reich uh, that is established by Russia, uh, and uh, Belarus doesn't exist anymore, and uh, Europe became gray zone uh, and that particular show talks about kind of our indifference how we allow uh, systems and authorities to dictate and manipulate what we must do but in reality if we will stand up for our rights then this new right will not be established and i hope everything what is happening in belarus now uh, will uh, give that uh, chance to stop that possible future development. And of course, currently we're already working on a number of new shows that are connected to um, current events uh, in Belarus. And hopefully it will be uh, our, again, like our experience, how we became refugees. And we're very interested in direct democracy. What is happening now, because in Belarus, what is happening now, it's a very unique thing that... Um, local boroughs could request uh, who to come and perform. So now we have a beautiful queue <laughs> of uh, many uh, boroughs of Minsk, I mean, like all of them, who require Belarus Free Theatre to come and perform. And mobility of our actors and directors uh, absolutely unique because uh, they made an adaptation very quickly that it's accessible to children because none of our shows, none of them are accessible to toddlers. Um, but here they managed, and I see video footage and uh, photos. It kind of almost uh, bring me to tears, but I'm trying not to go into tears before we take dictator down. But you see all those children laughing and clapping and getting close to actors and uh, that's something very unique and very beautiful about uh, direct democracy. Uh, but in July, when all those arrests started to happen, our audience got in touch with us and they said, can you start to perform shows face to face? Uh, and we reopened on the 2nd of July uh, with face to face performances. And uh, they said, because we get arrested, uh, we need your images to stay with us in jail because uh, images of your show uh, help us uh, going. And I guess uh, it's honestly with this climate, what is happening in the UK in performing arts industry, when the government kind of on a mission to kill this industry and saying that it's not viable, uh, I wish that Chancellor, UK Chancellor, get on a that exact plane from Gatwick, uh, London, Minsk, and uh, go and see in Belarus what it means theater and uh, why theater is viable. Because besides of a struggle, we allow ourselves to dream together and uh, we allow ourselves to hope together, but also we allow ourselves to suffer together and not to create uh, safe bubbles uh, where population is put in. Thank you Amazing. so much for that, Natalia. And just quickly Amazing. before you go, could you um, tell our listeners how people can engage with your work, how they can help the situation, what can they do? As I guess, like uh, all of us now are here, uh, we badly need that financial support, but we badly need financial support because all our guys in Belarus, and uh, that's exactly the only difference uh, that I could uh, probably say that I understand that the UK performing arts in a very difficult situation, but uh, our guys are 
trying with theater and arts to take dictator down. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we even need money for food parcels to send to jails, or we need uh, uh, warm clothes in order to go to the protest. Uh, and for our guys just to continue uh, to live their life and support their families. So that will be absolutely incredible if it's possible uh, to support uh, that way. Uh, it's possible to do that uh, via BelarusFreeCeater.com. Uh, and it's also possible to support that uh, via microsite. Uh, I'm with the band.com. Uh, and... Um, and uh, you could write to our info at belarusfreetheater.com uh, if uh, that link doesn't work, just in case, and we will answer and will hugely appreciate that help. And in terms of uh, kind of political help, uh, just continue to write to your MPs because uh, there is that particular democratic tool uh, that uh, British society has uh, and uh, ask your MPs uh, to make the British government to add uh, major uh, scumbags uh, to sanctions list so their assets will be frozen and uh, it will not be possible for them to continue business in the UK because there is no place for people like them uh, in this country because they even put this country in danger if they continue businesses here. Thank you very much for your time and, and taking some time out of your really important schedule to talk to us. And we'll share all those links with our audience in an email with this podcast too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Belarus has been in the headlines or... Probably not as much as it should have been, but you've we've heard and seen bits of information coming out of Belarus over this summer. Do you want to talk a bit more about the situation that's happening over there? Every now and again, uh, Belarus does have a form of election. Uh, it's not like an election where that we would know. It's more of a show towards democracy. And this year, I think Lukashenko suddenly announced, almost using COVID as a bit of a of a cover that oh yeah let's have an election knowing that actually people were concerned about much more urgent um you know public health issues around covid i mean he told people to just go out and take saunas and drive tractors to get over covid and drink vodka this time in particular there was um uh, a new uh, political uh, figure on the scene uh, called Svetlana and she stood and gained a lot of the popular vote but of course as always happens in Belarusian uh, elections over the past 20-25 years that wasn't allowed to stand and understandably the people were outraged Svetlana had to flee for her life she had to leave the country I mean she's a mother with with children she's not going to you know she's not going to martyr herself but the people really did rise up I think that there was this feeling that is an enough is enough and the protests were much much bigger than they've ever ever been before much more people were involved people were taking to the streets day after day after day thousands of people and thousands and thousands of people were getting detained and arrested and thrown into prison so it hit our news as perhaps it hasn't done before you know it was kind of like a perfect melting pot of things you know that the pandemic plus belarus has been kind of suffer suffering its economy has been suffering for a while so people had been experiencing that and 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 wanting change i think it was like a perfect melting pot the interesting thing about that story is obviously people that normally go up against lukashenko are kind of exiled, imprisoned, poisoned. But he didn't really pay attention to this woman, Svetlana, because I think she was the wife of somebody that was previously running. And she was a housewife and a mother. And I think Lukashenko just ignored her because of that. And when I, when I was listening to this again, this interview again, there was some really terrifying similarities between... Lukashenko and Trump in the election that we've just gone through. Yeah, I think that that is a scary resonance, isn't it? She was warning us to say, look, OK, this is terrible what's happening in Belarus, but what's happening in Belarus can happen anywhere. And 
democracy is a precious thing. Unless you've got your guard up and you're looking out for these things, things can very subtly and easily and quickly descend into this form of injustice, dictatorship, untruth and uh, there were a lot of similarities. Someone who is not prepared to accept the result of an election, someone who will not concede power. Uh, there, there are a lot of similarities, aren't there? Yeah, and that he like he was using COVID as a way to kind of perhaps easily rig the election into his favour, and how he talks about voter fraud, like that 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 phrase "voter fraud," and that the signatures were were not real on the voting ballots. There was one particular story that we just didn't have room to leave in the the conversation with Natalia, where she describes a show that this summer Belarus Free Theatre took up to the very northern regions of Belarus, and you can only get there by water. So they chartered um, like canal boats and sailed up to this very remote region where the o they don't have internet in this part of Belarus. So the only form of news they get is cable-fed state television. So they, the only narrative they know is that. Lukashenko's in charge isn't it great Belarus is a wonderful country and so the theatre company um, sailed up there for the summer and did a whole week-long series of performances to these remote villages where they would do a theatre piece from their boat on the river to the people on the bankside and then afterwards they would then cook a meal all together and share a meal together and at that meal they would start to share with the people in the villages hey this is what's really happening in Belarus. Did you know this is what's really happening? And again, it made me think that where there is control over what media and what news people get, then you really got to wade into that and disrupt it. And I actually think that the, Trump's next step would be to own his own media news outlet. I started thinking about if green belt was illegal would you still put it on and i mean bearing in mind some of what natalia has told us about how the kgb have been in a house and moving furniture and opening windows and round her um father-in-law's house causing him to have a heart attack and how her children are living are very tired of this life that has kind of been put upon them by what uh, Natalia and Nikolai are doing and being imprisoned and beaten, would you still do it? That is the big question, isn't it, for, for us when we hear this sort of witness, when we look at this sort of life, is would we do the same? Would we be brave enough to do the same? I mean, I'd like to think that we would. What do you think, Catherine? It's hard to know, isn't it? Yeah. I would like to think that we would. But I mean, you know, I, I asked her when she started this theatre company, did she know fully what she was getting herself in for? And she just said, yeah. It made me think that we really do take our freedom for granted. Because we haven't experienced those freedoms being taken away from us. I feel like we don't stand up for them enough. We don't realise how important they are. And when you look at countries like Belarus or Russia or Ukraine and you see people living under that kind of oppression... It's just crazy, isn't it? It's like, it feels like we're talking about some, like a country, you know, a hundred years ago. It's insane to think this is a country so close now. If these things get taken from us, they're much harder to win back than if we fight to ensure that they're not eroded, that they're not taken away, that freedom is really, really important. Freedom is a constant struggle. I think that was an Angela Davis quote there. It was an Angela Davis quote, yeah. One of the really shocking things that Natalia talks about, and, you know, I've read it in a lot of newspapers and um, news articles elsewhere, is about how... So currently these protests are happening every Sunday and they're quite peaceful and they're for the first time involving a lot of women and a lot of older people, which never used to happen really before because they were always the people that were voting for Lukashenko and it was normally the young people in the streets. So they're having these protests every Sunday and they're getting bigger and more people are coming to them. And the police are... Um, using really violent tactics to kidnap, imprison, beat, rape, torture 
these protesters and they would throw them into prison their families wouldn't know what prisons they were in or where they were in or how long they were going to be held for and um sometimes they would be released and you know that there was a news article that came out today wasn't there about a a young teacher 31 year old children's art teacher who was beaten and thrown in jail and when their family knew where they were he was found in a hospital in a coma and then died yeah and you know this isn't just a few people 15,000 people this summer as a result of these protests, which should be natural and lawful, have been imprisoned. 15,000 people. That is a lot of people. And, um, you know, the story about Roman Bondarenko, which has just come out today, like Catherine said, that's one story. Uh, it's a tragic story. But these, you know, not knowing where people are, not knowing why they've been put in jail, the, the conditions in which they're held when they are put in jail, just completely inhumane um you know like i think you said earlier on catherine almost as if it's like two centuries ago or yeah. something not not in the 21st century in europe um and one thing that really got me was that some of the belarus free theater activists and the people connected to natalia her friends her comrades her colleagues said that the only thing that got them through uh, their imprisonment if they have been imprisoned this summer which a lot of them have were replaying the scenes and the images from plays and work that Belarus Free Theatre has been producing over the last couple of decades. In a way, that theatre-making was a rehearsal, a direct rehearsal for their imprisonment. In other words, they, they, they thought, yeah, I've, I know what this is like because I've, I've acted it already and now it's happening to me. And if ever there was an argument for how powerful art can be, to provide you with that sort of strength to know that, okay, I know what's happening next. I know what's happening next. I, I've seen this. I've heard this story. I'm in this story now. Gave them that sort of like those tools and stories to enable them to get through. But I, I found that sad, shocking, powerful all at the same time. Yeah, because you realise their stuff isn't a dramatisation of the situation. Like it is just putting the current situation on stage live and factual you know it was the same when we saw when we had pussy riot to the festival you know um masha from pussy riot has been in in some of the shows with belarus free theater and there's a lot of similarities between what those two companies are doing and our audience are familiar of pussy riot and have a great affection and for and respect for the work that they're doing and there was a moment with Masha when she was in a Russian prison and she was trying to fight for her rights against the Russian prison guards and whilst in prison. So, the you know, I can't imagine what she was going through, but um, where she had to think to herself, like the easiest thing would be to give up everything is miserable because I'm fighting for this. But at the end of the day, I'm by myself in my, in my prison cell. And I have to think what, what can, what can I live with? What could, what decisions could I live with myself making? And Natalia said the same thing, like, what can I accept? And really having to think about those questions. What am I willing to put up with? Really? Masha, Pussy Riot, Natalia, Belarus Free Theatre, they are living through extreme, extreme circumstances. But that is a question for all of us, isn't it? That That is a, it's a moral and an ethical question for all of us on a daily basis. What are we going to do to be on the side of light instead of darkness? It's a question for all of us, no matter what our circumstances are. It's like that, that question just keeps coming around at various different parts through our history be on the right side of history or be on the wrong side of history. Even Natalia has that sense that the arc of history might be bending towards justice. I love that bit where she said about her own father, you know, because of what you're doing, Natalia, because of what Belarus Free Theatre continues to do, I will keep myself alive to try and live one year in a free Belarus. And this feels like the moment that this could happen. I mean, like, just to really put an importance on what is happening now in Belarus. Like, people have never protested 
like this before against the dictatorship is what I got from that conversation. This could be that moment of change. And I think Natalia said that it could also be the moment if we're not paying attention and if we're not putting pressure on on the situation there, it could be the moment where when a dictator is losing power, things get really, really awful. Like that is that is the fork in the road now that it feels like the country has come to. So in a way, we could just keep on talking and reflecting and digging into that conversation and we hope that's what you will do wherever you are with your friends and family please share the podcast around and let others know what you're hearing from natalia and on the greenbelt podcast it's it was just an immense privilege to be able to make a festival that can include people as brave and as creative as, as Belarus Free Theatre. And we'll still, and we'll keep engaging with the work and sharing it on our socials as well and to you. So, but do try and connect with the situation yourself. What about next week? Who are we speaking to next week on the podcast, Catherine? Next week, we've got Testament, who is MC, playwright, actor, We've had him at the festival a couple of times with a couple of theatre shows which were incredible, one called Blake Remixed and one recently called Woke. Um, and we have a conversation with him about his art, his work, his faith. Yeah, please let us know what you're thinking of the podcasts. You can email us on stbi at greenbelt.org.uk um, and on social media you can leave us comments, obviously, on um, at Greenbelt on Twitter and at Greenbelt Festival on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to rate us on the podcast platforms that you're listening to us on because that, that really helps with us getting the episode more listened to. Rate us if you like us. If you don't like <laughs> us, don't worry about it. <laughs> We've just listened to a conversation that's all about the truth, Catherine. We just want people to tell the truth. <laughs> Have your say nice. if you agree with us. <laughs> yeah, that's our own form of uh, diktat. Thank you to Daisy Ware Jarrett in the office for producing us and Paul Truman for helping us frame the episode. And to Josh and Jake on our volunteer recorded talks team who do all the polishing and make us sound half decent before we release this. They're wonderful. We had a lovely little email in from someone saying that they love listening to the uh, podcast each week as they're doing the ironing. So, you know, there might be other ways in which some of you are listening to uh, the podcast and we'd like we'd like to hear about those, please. I like listening when I'm in the car. I mean, photographic evidence, if you are ironing or dog walking or it's a bit difficult if you're driving a car. But um, don't do that. Yeah. How do you listen to yours? <laughs> Sounds like a Cadbury's cream egg sort of commercial, doesn't it? Anyway. I miss Cadbury's when Cadbury's used to be good. I miss it. I mean, li living and growing up in the black country, Cadbury's is quite close to your heart. And you yeah. felt betrayed when they changed that, that chocolate recipe? Completely betrayed. I mean, we, you know, you all have friends, family, relatives that have worked or been around Cadbury's. And, you know, it's a big part of our our identity. We have a Cadbury's chocolate factory. We have Bourneville. And, um, yeah, then it got sold to Kraft which was an American company, and they just, they changed the recipe. I don't know whether they're admitting it, but they changed the recipe. It tastes nothing like Cadbury's anymore, and I'm furious. I know you can go on tours of Cadbury's World and Bourneville and all that sort of stuff, but it, it, it sounds like the, the stuff of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, it, it, are there sort of all sorts of magical rooms and secret recipes going on? I don't think you should go there thinking of Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory because I did that and I was really disappointed. Cool. It feels like such a relief to talk about chocolate after <laughs> Belarus. We all needed a bit of chocolate. <laughs>